Just a warning. This episode contains topics and or language that could be heavy or triggering and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So I know I brought it up to you before about the satanic panic when like throughout the 80s and 90s there was a rash of cases involving satanic ritual abuse and people refer to it as the satanic panic. There were cases all across the country. So there was the McMartin preschool trial in California. There was the West Memphis Three, the Martinsville case in Saskatchewan in Canada. There were cases in Texas. I believe there were cases in even North Carolina. There were cases all around the country and really all around the world, right? Australia had a bunch as well. And the UK you know, too, I think. Yeah, I believe there were cases in the UK and it, it's pretty much, you know, it was around this time when people were really scared of occult practices and sexual abuse of children by these organized satanic groups. Yeah, I remember when you first talked about the satanic panic. I had no idea what you were talking about. And you looked at me like, what? But you lived (laughs) in the 90s. I said, yeah, I did. But I I don't know. For some reason, it just kind of flew over my head. Maybe I just wasn't paying attention. So, So to me, to do this episode was more of a learning experience for me. Okay. I mean, it seems like a lot of the origins for believing in the possibility of satanic ritual abuse and satanic cults during the 80s and 90s comes from crimes like the Manson family murders in the late 60s and the trial taking place in the early 70s. You also have intentional communities or cults, as they're often called, that people joined in the 60s and 70s, as well as other things like occultism in general the rise of Satanism and Satanism being misunderstood in which Satanism really doesn't have much to do with Satan calling it Satanism, right? I mean, that would give people the impression that the worship of Satan is involved, even though it isn't, you have, you know, you have the, the Jonestown massacre, you have Hare Krishna's, you have all these other groups during that time. And, and it kind of concerned people or people were concerned that, you know, okay, people are joining these groups. We don't know what they're doing. We really don't know what their intentions are. And so, and so in the 80s, 90s, you also have the media, you have news, you have law enforcement that are portraying the image that these groups are very dangerous and they're abducting children, they're taking children and they're abusing our children. And so that's when you had things like stranger danger, right? Or was it we believe the children was another thing that came from that time. Also. I mean, late at night, like I remember right before I'd go to bed around like 10, 10.30, you know, you'd see that commercial that would be on network television, right? It's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? I think in some cases it might even have been like, it's 11 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? But I, I distinctly remember the 10 o'clock commercials. That's freaky, right? Because if it's on network television, everybody's watching it. So it seems like it had a profound impact on American culture, but specifically 
like American child raising or child rearing culture, because maybe in the past people were a little bit more laid back and let their kids out. But now, I mean, yeah, I mean, because I, I remember as a kid, it's always like, you know, be careful people around you. If you see somebody strange, get away from them. Right. You see like a weird, creepy guy in the park, get home, run home, you know, be careful of like, white vans driving around with like blacked out windows that might have ducked children right well i'm still scared of white vans driving around well that i mean it doesn't happen i mean actually i think it happened quite a bit in chicago there was also like that whole clown thing in chicago where people were scared of like murderous clowns too that that also was a, a thing you seem concerned uh <laughs> It was a thing. You should look it up, though, really. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, there's also that 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 fear of, okay. I mean, back in the day, people used to leave their doors open. Their doors unlocked, rather. Yeah. So people would leave their doors unlocked. The kids could go out and play, you know, come home when the streetlights come on. And now it's, all right, don't go too far. Don't Don't leave the street. Don't you know only be around people that you know like you're unsure of the people in your own neighborhood at this point because there's so much fear that's instilled in the public from watching just watching the news or even watching Geraldo right it's it scared everybody everybody was terrified yeah because you, you didn't know if you sent your kid to school or daycare you didn't know if they were going to be okay you worried about that right I have friends who have kids and they're still worried about those kinds of things yeah, I think it was I think it was interesting to see how many different aspects of society were involved. It wasn't just a parent and a children and a school thing. It was across the board which probably also made it that much more dramatic and that's why it was in the news because it was well it was a societal issue. It was a moral panic. Yeah, it seemed like all of these different areas, right? These different facets of society came together and it was the perfect storm. This whole thing just snowballed out of control where you're saying that all different types of people are involved in these satanic cults that are abusing children. You go from, you know, a preschool where administration and teachers are are doing outlandish things to children, these outlandish claims that they're sodomizing children or doing all kinds of just absurd things. There was even one uh, accusation for the McMartin school where someone was like flying in the air. I mean, once you hear something like that, that should kind of stop you, you know, so you can reflect and say, well, wait, like actually think about it, you know, contemplate, is this actually a credible accusation with how extreme they sound? And people didn't do that. They actually believed that these things occurred, right? There were hundreds and hundreds of accusations, right? I mean, there are hundreds of reports of these things happening all around the country. And at the end of all of this, we found that not much actually happened, which is which is crazy. Something to note is how this was such a big phenomenon in the 80s and 90s. And it's not something that you hear about today. Or do you? I mean, do you know anybody who believes in the satanic panic? So what's interesting is that you still do come across people who believe bits and pieces, right, about the satanic panic. So 
somebody might believe, of course, there are these devil worshiping groups that, that, you know, abuse children. Mm -hmm. So I think that you're going to get people who are quick to believe parts of this, right? They may not believe the full on satanic ritual abuse, but they may believe that there's a, a sex ring that's abusing children, right? Or they may believe that they do, they may actually believe in, in satanic ritual abuse. And they may believe in, simply they may believe in recovered memories, which is still persistent, right? People still actually full on believe in recovered memories in which, you know, research that has been done over the years has proven otherwise, that, that they're not necessarily reliable. Yeah, your mind can create false memories and they may not be true accounts of what actually happened to you. They may not have actually happened at all. That, that was a big part of psychology or the thoughts you know, in psychology at the time. To learn more about the satanic panic, we spoke to a historian of religions, David Frankfurter, who is the author of Evil Incarnate, Rumors of Demonic Conspiracy and Satanic Abuse in History. In this book, David talks about the representation of evil and how humans collectively as a society identify what constitutes as evil in order to eliminate it. The word evil throughout history has been used to ostracize and incriminate others. By labeling groups as evil or the other, it allows society to dehumanize them and then potentially commit atrocities or violent acts against them. Thanks, David, for joining us on Bound by the Cloak. We're really thrilled to have you. And we know your research is vast and diverse in the field of re religious studies. So what made you at one point want to focus on the moral panic of the 1980s and 90s? Yeah, well, I had always had a kind of side interest in the frightening and inflammatory, I would say. And a lot of my early work was on on end of the world religions and and fantasies about the end of the world. But I was interested in demons and I was interested in horrifying things, which are very much a part of religion. And I would say about in the late 1980s, I began to hear these stories of people who had been convicted of very strange sexual abuse in the context of childcare centers and kindergartens and things like that. And the stories on which they were sent to jail, sometimes for like multiple lifetimes, were just impossible. I mean, these were like straight out of the mouths of children at the preschools. And I was trying to figure out how these kinds of stories would lead to people actually being sent away to prison, a kind of modern day uh, witch trial. So let's pause for a second. We thought it'd be important to explain some of the cases to you. The McMartin Preschool Trial was a seven-year-long trial that is one, if not the most, expensive trials in American history. In 1993, in Manhattan Beach, California, Ray Bucky, the son of the owner of the preschool, was accused of molesting a child. The case grew larger and larger, and it just snowballed. Over time, school staff and administration would also be accused of abusing children, but the claims, the allegations, became increasingly more bizarre mother came forward and claimed that her child, who had been attending the preschool, had been molested. The mother of the child would come to be diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, but the case had grown too large at this point. Bucky, his mother, sister, and school staff would be indicted 
on charges of abuse. In the end, no incriminating evidence was found and no convictions would come from the trial. In Saskatchewan, Canada, the community of Martinsville had a major case of alleged sexual abuse of children. Similar to the McMartin case, a mother had come forward and alleged that her child had been abused, this time at a daycare center. Police began to investigate and the allegations began to snowball. Nine people, including several police officers, were accused of running a satanic cult called the Brotherhood of the Ram. In the end, the daycare owner's son was found guilty of child molestation. But the claims and charges of sexual abuse for all others accused were dismissed. So in the end, one was convicted and eight people were freed. A few of the defendants successfully sued for wrongful prosecution, but their lives were already in ruin. Innocent people lost their jobs, and this case would forever change the way that their community saw them. So in the end, the claims of a devil church, the claims of conspiracy, and the claims of satanic ritual abuse were found to be false. This case had a big effect on the way that law enforcement interviews children, especially when it comes to sexual abuse. Anatomically correct dolls, they asked the children leading questions by showing them photos or asking them about specific locations. The trial fell apart due to lack of evidence and the children couldn't even accurately identify or pick out the people that they had claimed participated in satanic ritual abuse. In 1994, three young men, teenagers actually, Jesse Miss Kelly, Jason Baldwin, and Damian Eccles were convicted of the murder of three young boys. Baldwin and Miss Kelly were sentenced to life imprisonment, while Eccles was sentenced to the death penalty. The prosecution asserted that the three boys were killed as part of a satanic ritual. This case differs from the other two in that the three teens accused were from a lower socioeconomic class. Two were high school dropouts and one suffered from mental illness. Eccles and Baldwin were close friends and they shared a love for music and fiction, had similar interests. Now they grew up in the Bible Belt, West Memphis is in Arkansas, and so they didn't really fit in with the rest of their community. They were picked out for these crimes based on their previous records, which included theft and vandalism. Miss Kelly, despite an IQ of 72, was interrogated by police and coerced into false confessions and false statements. These false confessions and statements, along with the fabricated statements of other parties, led to these wrongful convictions of these three young men. Eventually, all three were released under the Alfred plea. An Alfred plea is when the defendant accepts the ramifications of the crime while still asserting their innocence. And now back to David. Around the same time, I started hearing stories about people who had either been treating victims of a satanic ritual abuse, or actually from, there was a, a colleague of mine who'd actually claimed to have been a victim herself. And this also was very, very strange because the stories that I was hearing in all these cases was very reminiscent of the stories of witches' sabbats back in the early modern period in Europe, stories of, of Jewish ritual murder back in also the early modern period, the stories of witches in West Africa. I mean, you, you hear these stories, and I was trying to figure out, initially, was there something I could 
contribute as a scholar of these of kind of comparative religions. And then slowly as as time went on and I was I couldn't write a kind of quickie novel or quickie study of this, I realized that my real interest was in what is actually similar across history. We have the satanic ritual abuse panic. We have claims of these outrageous rituals and sacrifices. We have experts in discerning evil in the form of psychologists and ministers and police. What's similar across West African witch-finding movements and early modern witch-finding movements and all these kinds of things? So that's really what my book was about. And that's really where my interest lay. Yeah, it's actually something I really found interesting about it, too. Because even just like an initial research, I, I, I also have like a very, I'm very interested in like history and religious history as well. So I, I always find that really interesting. So I, I did kind of um, take note and focus on like those similarities and commonalities between them. You could tell us how the satanic panic began, uh, the origins of it at the beginning. Yeah, well, it was kind of a confluence of a lot of different things. We're talking about the 1970s had two things going on that were important to realize. One was what I would call the cult panic. <laughs> that is to say, all these new religious movements that we don't see so much anymore, but there's certainly a lot of TV shows about them, like the Kimmy Schmidt uh, TV show. But we had Krishna Consciousness, we had Unification Church, there were small groups like Charles Manson and Jonestown, there were there was a group up in Vermont called the Twelve Tribes. And a lot of people a lot well, a lot of people were were dropping out of college and joining these new religious movements. And most of the time they would just kind of like leave after a few years. But the country by the let's say the middle of the 1970s, was absolutely terrified of these groups and wanted all kinds of laws based on brainwashing. There was a lot of talk about brainwashing. How did my nice Harvard-educated daughter end up like playing tambourines for Hare Krishnas? You know, there that was a, a big idea. But the, the reason I bring this up is that these fears and these ideas about cults are going to feed into the culture's notion of satanic cults. The other thing that happened in the 1970s was what I would call the rediscovery of child sexual abuse, not as something that's done by weirdos in men's rooms and bus stations, but uh, something that takes place in the family that your father or brother or uncle might be doing. And this was very hard for the culture to think about. And it seemed both so evil and it also seemed so incomprehensible. And what it led to by the 1980s was the first the first feminist response to this was, this is happening. And if a girl says this, or a boy says this, you got to believe whatever they say, believe whatever they say. So the first response is, is absolute credulity. And there were a lot of books published that said, you cannot question, you can't put pressure on someone who's been traumatized in this particular way. But by the 19, by the middle of the 1980s, some of the claims are getting much more outlandish. One of the curious areas where the child sexual abuse kind of merges with outlandish claims is in the, the burgeoning literature on what was called multiple personality disorder. And this was the idea that especially girls, but sometimes boys would develop multiple 
completely independent personalities as a response to horrendous sexual abuse in the home. And it started with three personalities and then with a famous book called Sybil. It was seven, I think seven personalities. And then there was Billy Milligan with 32 personalities. It just kept on going, going on and on. And psychologists and psychiatrists who specialized in this all were, were gaining a lot of fame because they were dealing with this strange, strange psychopathology that was linked to sexual abuse involved kind of the these strange multiplication of personalities and dissociation too. So Chandi, you could be like a perfectly normal podcast interviewer, but you know, if something strange happened to you in the bus or something like that, you would suddenly emerge into a totally different personality named Tom. And so, and you wouldn't even know about Tom. So this also let it created this fertile ground for a receptivity to patients in psychologists and social workers' offices who would say, would go into what we would call an abreactive state or an extreme post-traumatic state and, and say, and say, you know, mommy, don't hit the baby with, stab the baby or, or they're coming at me in a procession or they're holding candles or something like that. And the doctors who were treating these, these kinds of patients who were beginning to kind of reveal stories about satanic cults were absolutely credulous. Very few psychiatrists, social workers, even psychologists had a sense of, of critical distance on this. As a matter of fact, they began to view these patients as almost windows into a world of evil they'd never dreamed existed. And they start writing about this and they start looking for it in other patients and it starts uh, snowballing. So that you might, if if you have weird dreams or you aren't, your ordinary therapist isn't really helping you in the, in this day, you know, in ordinary life, you might go to a therapist and they might say, you know, do you ever have dreams of like horned people holding knives over babies? And, you know, you may find yourself beginning to wonder, was I a victim of satanic ritual abuse? Now, where did the, where did the, the main myth come from? The main myth came from in many ways, a book called Michelle Remembers, which was written in about 1980. And it suggested that in, I think it was Montreal or Toronto, there was a vast satanic cult that did all kinds of terrible sexual, religious, ritualized things to the little girl, Michelle. And it was multi-generational and learned things in Africa. So there's a kind of primitivist component. But the, sto the story kind of snowballed through the 1980s. The idea was that there were these cults and they were in your community and they would put on robes and have altars and they would sacrifice babies and they would impregnate girls and they would take the babies that they that they bore and they would sacrifice them and that this was a kind of intergenerational and international cult and just kind of popped up in Olympia, Washington, and in North Carolina, and in Boston, all over the place. And the kind of ultimate kind of icing on the cake was a four-hour special on television. I can't remember what station it was, uh, probably 
NBC or something like that in 1989 by the famous kind of muckraking journalist, Geraldo Rivera. And he brought everything together. He brought stories of daycare abuse. He brought stories of therapy of young women who were abused. He brought Ozzy Osbourne, the goth singer, and Marilyn Manson, the other goth singer, and all kinds of people together. If you watch it today, it doesn't make a lot of sense. All the threads are kind of untied. But people watched this. It had an enormous viewing audience, and people learned what satanic ritual abuse was in the satanic cult read. So that's that's the story in a nutshell. You know, something that you've talked about, which is really interesting, is it seems like in the 70s, people started to almost romanticize these groups and convenings. And then suddenly the switch just changed into having some sort of error. So why do you think that switch happened? Well, it's really interesting you say that, Chandy, because there is an element, I would say, of not so much romanticizing of satanic cults, but using them as a way of fantasizing. It's a kind of, it's not just the evil, the kind of allure we have with with evil groups. You know, there's, you know, the, the fascination with true crime and stuff like that. It's also the the pornographic sexual aspects of this made people look, people felt the need to look like, can you believe they do this? Can you believe they do that? And I would say that all the way back into the time and before the time of the earliest stories of witches' sabbats and witches and witches getting together and having orgies, that there's always been this, this kind of slightly pornographic fascination with these groups. So at the at the same time as it's locating evil, it's imagining evil among, you know, your neighbors. It's also creating this notion that's, you know, akin to the idea that your neighbors are having orgies in the basement. It's that kind of fascination. I would say, and and yes, you're right that in the 70s with cults, there was a kind of hypersexualization of a lot of these cults the unification church and their group marriages, the the kind of ecstatic Krishna consciousness or Hare Krishnas. These groups were very non-sexual, by the way. <laughs> they were really non-sexual. But people imagined in the television shows and movies about it were just over the top. So I would say, yes, that's a very important element in keeping this going. I'm going to go and check out what my neighbors are up to now. <laughs> hmm. Right. Even when it comes to Michelle remembers, I feel like just like the descriptions that that Michelle Smith gave, the accounts from the book, the image of Satan just reminds me so much of Rosemary's Baby Mm -hmm. and certain scenes from that. It just seems very like the imagery is just very like these people and, you know, the the acts that she talks about in in the book. Yeah. Um, You know, it's just it's just very sort of, yeah, like this fantasy of, I mean, Mm -hmm. The images of the devil have their own sources in art history. They go back to a huge upsurge in depicting the devil as as a goat in the 19th century. And then further back to 18th century with Goya, the famous uh, Spanish painter. And once it gets back to the, let's say the 16th century, the images are a little bit more innocent and and simple. People just, uh, well, it's just like a, a naked guy with a goat's head and people are, are kissing his butt and stuff like that. It's, it's not like these giant enthroned beasts you get okay. in, the, in the 19th century. But yes, it, it's like a particular image that we get so that every 
every satanic group has to have someone with a goat's head. It's just like it becomes okay. canonical in a way. And I would say this is one important aspect of the formulation of the satanic cult myth, that it is in many, many ways, important ways, a negative depiction of the Catholic Church. Catholic Church in the sense of emphasizing ritual, emphasizing people chanting, emphasizing an altar, emphasizing a blood sacrifice. You have to remember that the satanic cult myth really flourished in Protestant areas. And Protestant culture in America has always held these fantasies and caricatures of Catholic ritual. And so the integration of, of satanic cult images of go enthroned goats and stuff like that ends up being very much this kind of anti-Catholic caricature. I mean, this is the thing that Anton LaVey, the head of the satanic church back in the, um, in the 70s, which was a very small enterprise and had no impact on this, but also the new temple of Satan, they've all taken over this, this symbolism, but they, yeah. they have a message there, which is, yeah. we can't believe you guys are scared by this. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it so there there's there is a message there. Interesting enough, most of the people who joined the satanic church in the 70s were ex-Catholic. That's interesting. Yeah. The idea of this moral panic of the 80s and 90s is is very much similar to me to the Salem witch trials or even just the witch trials in in England as well. Mm-hmm. Just just the idea of like the, you know, seeking out the the evil in, in your neighborhood, right? Seeking out the evil around you. Mm-hmm. Just sort of like the the scapegoat, the the fun, like placing blame on on what you don't understand necessarily. And I don't know if you could elaborate on that or talk about that. The idea of you see something about somebody, somebody that's sort of iffy that you're not sure about, you don't understand them. So you right. sort of seek them out and you place blame on that because that's happened in a few of the cases, West Memphis 3 as well. Salem's a very particular case in multiple ways. And one of the things I think we did learn after Salem in the late 17th century was due process and a more a fairer judicial system. This was the 1690s after all, and they didn't really know what they were doing. And they thought that a legal system could address supernatural figures. So we were very much saved by our judicial system. I mean, that people could be exonerated for these ridiculous things. And that sometimes people could be found innocent. It was It was strange that in so many cases in Boston, in North Carolina, in Texas, in California, that district attorneys did find find it sensible to try to convict people of these strange, strange acts. The other difference, I would say, between the satanic cult panic in the 1990s and in England and Salem in the 17th century is the degree of a fantasy involved. Curiously, <laughs> England and the colonies, that is us, had a much more, had a much simpler notion of witchcraft than we did in <laughs> the 1990s. So a witch was evil and could do terrible things and could afflict people simply by looking at them or or 
putting or using uh, dolls and things like that. And they and certainly people accused of witch, witchcraft could be killed en masse, but they didn't have the idea that they had in Europe of the witches all coming together in, in the forest or in caves and in sac- sacrificing babies and worshiping the devil. That they didn't have. We had that in the 1990s. We had a much more florid image of the satanic cult. If the issue was only somebody having supernatural powers and being accused of that, that would be that would be one thing. But these were what what Americans believed in the 1990s was much more florid, much more extreme. It was much closer to of the witch's Sabbath that you have in in uh, Europe in the early modern period. You've mentioned that every single part of society was affected in a way, specifically the major discipline, like Mm -hmm. psychologists, the media, it was in the media all the time, it seems like, Mm -hmm. which I wish I could go back in time. I was a kid then. There's YouTube. There's YouTube. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) But like living it. So what do you think was the role that society played in these events? You know, was it a witch hunt? Do you think that society was using this moral panic as a scapegoating technique for larger issue that was happening at the time? Well, I think like all moral panics and all all conspiracy fears that a lot of things are going on, fields like psychology, social work, feminist psychology, trauma psychology were what we would call emergent fields. And the people who specialized in them and identified closely with them in many ways, we're seeking more of a public stage than they, than they had. You know, if you're a social worker and you're specializing in child sexual abuse and you want society to see how big it is, you don't want to just be kind of going to work every day, you know, with your enormous caseload. You want a voice. And these conspira- conspiracy theories like this, they become contexts for people to move out of their their professional roles and to become what we call moral entrepreneurs. And that is to say to, to be bigger, to be, to be calling out an evil in society. Same thing with a lot of evangelical pastors, uh, psychiatrists, district attorneys, and, but DAs always have that kind of uh, role, but I would say certain uh, police who decided they were going to be cult cops, they were going to be specialists in in the satanic menace and and lecture to parents groups and school groups about, you know, how you keep your children from getting involved in satanic cults. So police too are, yeah, are are, certain police are are looking for this, this bigger role. So I would say that, you know, society is composed of a lot of different people who want, some of whom want authority or want power. And society itself has anxieties like children, like what are people doing with children? And what are my neighbors doing with children? And what are that, what's this new ethnic group doing with their children? There's a lot of, of claims making about how people treat children. And I would say that society provides the, the myth of evil. And then a lot of different new groups start performing their own new roles, their old new authority, their new authority in mastering that evil. Do you think it would have been as big of a deal as it was if the victims were not children 
What if they were adults? No, I think the, the essential part of this was that it was childcare centers and it was women coming into psychotherapy, claiming this happened to them as small children. Yes. Okay. So it's women and children. Yeah. So the most vulnerable girls, population. Girls, exactly. Yeah, yes. girls. Yeah. And it's the, the yeah. whole, like, we believe the children, <clears throat> the whole, we believe yeah. the children thing where, you know, they, they're, mm-hmm. children don't lie. They're, they're not, you know, they, of course they're telling the truth and it's not that right. they're ne- not telling the truth. It's just that it's how you get that truth from them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. That's yeah. part of it too. That was, yeah. I think that was a big part of it. Um, yes. 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 Especially in yes. Martinsville and, and even in the case in California. Yeah. Yes, where they, I mean, they, society has changed in terms of, uh, of investigative techniques, you cannot use anatomically correct dolls and say, what did he do to you, you have to record every session, and the jury will look at how whether the social worker primed the primed the child to to talk about what happened to, to try to kind of make sense of things on their own, the children's stories are just fantastic. They're like the kinds of things that that five-year-olds talk about all the time like all kinds of stuff but but the the district attorneys tried to pull it together and the parents groups tried to pull it together into a kind of consistent narrative i mean i want to i want to make clear that that where this partly came out of the rediscovery of child sexual abuse and the issues that were tackled are issues that we still have with us. It's very, very difficult sometimes to figure out what happened in a traumatic situation, whether trauma happened from the parents or from the from a perpetrator. These are these are these are always going to be with us. And I think one of the things that happened in this time was a a little bit more streamlining of techniques and questions and how you interview victims, and what kinds of assumptions you have about conspiracies on the outside. Yeah, it seems like, um, I, I remember reading about the Martinsville case, and and just the way that they interviewed children, and, and to sort of kept them, kept questioning them for hours, and just sort of that, tell me, you know, tell me what happened, and they would ask over and over and over again, the kids would you know, give their initial answer, then it would change based yeah. on whoever is asking them questions. What, what, so mm-hmm. if you, if you, you know, answer this question, you can go home. Or if you answer this question, you get a toy. And <laughs> yeah, it's, right. those yeah. things don't help. That That's not, especially with a child. Yeah. And yeah. honestly, even in some cases with adults. Yes. Yeah. It's a forced sort of confession. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's true. So we have all these different, these different areas, right? We have psychology. We have parents, we have law enforcement, we have the media. They've all played a role. What do you think played the biggest role? Or how do you think those roles sort of interacted and sort of led to this? You have this idea of satanic ritual abuse, which seems outrageous. But how does it become so seen as like, oh, yes, this very plausible thing based on on all these different areas sort of coming together? Well, yeah, I mean, it's questions like, how does it become almost kind of a routine part of the right. of the world rather than a horror um, right. that you suddenly discover? And I would say that, you know, over time, in certain circumstances, for example, a police, a cult cop talking to a parents group is going to is going to perform confidence and knowledge about this. 
So it's like, oh yeah, we know about these satanic cults. And so it becomes almost a kind of, the parents, the audience may be shocked, but he will be saying, oh, this is something we're all, we, we know about. We know this is all around us. So it'll get, it will contribute to a certain, I wouldn't say normativity, but it'll, it'll make the myth that much more understandable, not prosaic, but understandable, like part of the world. Let's see what else. Psychologists who are satanic ritual abuse experts may bring it up in a kind of everyday way with some of their patients, or maybe with a trauma survivors group where one or two women will say, you know, I was a victim of satanic ritual abuse, and it'll become kind of a more understandable, expected thing in the world. And then, of course, the media will be very important, you know, where they where the the lead in the the news story will be another satanic cult unearthed in your local kindergarten so so in many ways everybody is presenting it as this is part of the landscape and and i the psychologist the cult cop the victim's advocate or something like that i am the one who can see this you may not be able to see it you parents, but I can see this. I've been through it. And as a matter of fact, one of the ways they often perform their own expertise is talking about how they've been victimized by the satanic cults. You know, I I have gotten so into it that someone left a black cat on my doorstep. I've gotten so into it that I've been getting midnight telephone calls. You present yourself as the victim of the very group you are out to divulge. I guess at that point, you probably will make up anything or your mind will come up with anything to just fit in that group because everybody is talking about it. Everybody is having some sort of experience. So you have this notion that you do need to, that if something is not happening to you, that you need to come up with something to explain Mm -hmm. to the world that I'm also experiencing this. I'm a fellow I'm a peer in this. Yes, I think, and this was one of the most tragic aspects was how routinized it became in sexual abuse survivors groups so that in some ways, the women who said, oh yeah, I know perfectly well who abused me. It was my uncle and he did it for five years um, and no one believed me, but I know every time he did it and that that somehow becomes less interesting to the group or to society than the person who's saying, I was led as a little girl dressed in a robe and I had to watch babies being killed and that kind of thing. You know, the, the, the gothic horrors of the satanic ritual abuse myth um, ended up garnering all the attention and real sexual abuse was in some ways left as almost regular sexual abuse, which is a horrible thing to say. If you so think about weird. it, yeah, it goes from we believe the children to well, we don't believe that necessarily because it's it not it's not as extreme. It's not like this. Yeah, this or we thing. want we don't want to hear that. We right. want to hear the extreme case. Yeah, right. Because we we love to hear the more extreme. We we tend to right. go for that, even even though like right in front of us is the real story. Yeah, and I think also you had said this before because the victims were kids. This is why it became such an issue because kids tend to, or issues about kids generate some sort of visceral response, but also mm-hmm. issues about sex. So mm-hmm. it was like a two-in, I don't, I don't know what the phrase is, 
but sex and kids. So it just worked out yeah. that these yeah. issues are so visceral to the public. Yeah. It w- it's something that comes up in a lot of a kind of evil conspiracy stories back through time that, I mean, it's some, it's something I, I hadn't really expected with the story, the stories of Jewish ritual murder, which was very, very popular in Germany in, and Italy. Not, not the murder was <laughs> popular, but the, the myth that Jews needed to steal a little Christian child and stab him and get his blood in order to make matzah. This story goes back to the 12th century, actually, but really takes off in Germany in the 15th and 16th century. And the picture, the images of the children that are concocted, they don't have photographs, obviously, they have, they have woodcuts. And so they're concocted, but they're, they're subtly eroticized. So the Jews are, are, are aiming their knives at the little boy's penises and the blood coming out of them, of course, looks a lot like Christ. And of course, there is the kind of imitation of Christ aspect, these stories, these martyrdoms of these little children. But there is an eroticization of it. And it's it's interesting to think about how that may be going on at the same time as uh, stories of the brutalization of the same child. So yes, sex and, and, and aggression come together very much here. I think also... Evil seems to be something that is fantasized about or eroticized about just media nowadays, like Lucifer. He's, I don't know if you've seen the show, but it's a very good looking devil. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's just interesting to see, you know, why these aspects of evil or so-called evil are eroticized and fantasized. I don't know if you've read the book, The Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes and talks about that humans cannot function without fear in society. And it's Mm -hmm. interesting because when I was reading it, there was a way that I was fantasizing about an evil sovereign who is ruling us. So Mm -hmm. something to think about. Yeah. Well, one one of the theories about this is that once you designate, once you frame something as evil, you are in a way, giving yourself license to fantasize within it. So that a satanic cult, once we agree they're a satanic cult and they'll do anything, then you, your mind in some ways can, is free to start thinking about all the different things they do. So, so also with images of the devil, images, stories of demons and things like that, images, you know, what demons look like, you're already setting them off as demons. You can, do, you can say anything you want because you framed it that way. I'm trying to think of other ways in which we've framed. Well, you know, I, th- I think in old images, well, moving into the 20th century of kind of the primitive other. That would be, you know, people who live on an island or Brazilian savages or African savages or something like that. Once you've designated them as savages, then in the history of fiction of American and, and European fiction, in some way you give yourself license to, to talk about orgies and sexuality and stuff like that. There's another aspect of this too, but this doesn't really have anything to do with, with I think, with the the main topic of our conversation, and that is that evil characters are often brought back into 
let, let's say domesticated. They're made less scary by putting them on. So you might think in terms of Halloween, you know, and little children who take one of the most horrifying movie characters, uh, Freddy Krueger, and they dress up like him. And that way they feel empowered and strong. And so there's that aspect too, that, that, you know, once you've, once, once you've designated something evil and you take it upon yourself to be it, then it becomes more domesticated. You, you give yourself a little bit of, of license to do crazy things. You find this a lot with devil imagery in, uh, in Central South America, which is, it's a much more kind of lusty, friendly devil. Someone who you can relate to a little bit more closely than the Virgin Mary and, and Jesus. So, so you're right to observe that once that designating things evil or the devil, in some ways, our fantasies slip over into the evil, and the devil comes sliding back into our own our own imaginative worlds. It's really interesting that you mentioned Freddy Krueger. Just because of, you know, the crime that he was, I guess, the whatever he was sort of like pinned with doing in the movies. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that he enters the dreams of children. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To attack them is actually really interesting. Yeah, no, totally. It's, it's, yeah, that's it's super horrifying image, image, but if people, uh, ch- children often dress up as horrifying characters and they, they feel empowered through this. So you've been studying this for some time. And what do you think is the most misunderstood aspect about this moral panic in history? Most misunderstood would probably be how complicated it is, how many different characters and interests come into it, that it's not just psychologists who who are messing with their patients. It's district attorneys, it's victims advocates. It's not just feminists who are blaming everybody for child sexual abuse. It's it's a particular stage in the understanding of how to go about talking about sexual abuse. And yeah, I would I would say that it it's really how complicated all these cases are. I mean one one of the one of the things that I was so struck by when I was reading the materials about Salem, for example, and again this is 16 1690s is how important using judicial modern judicial process to go after people accused of sending spirits against other other people that this is this was really what the problem was this is what led to so many people being killed because they really depended on that process in order to to resolve the problem and back in some rural village in England, they wouldn't have those things. They would just kind of like ask somebody to atone or be purified or kill them. But there were a lot of people killed in, 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 in Salem. And that's one of the reasons is it's this clash of kind of folk traditions of witchcraft and, on the other hand, modern judicial theory. So it's co- the complexity. I think that's what's, that's what's missed. And on that note, if you wanted to delve deeper into this topic, more so than you already have, what would you want to learn more about? Probably just going deeper into the different periods. 
there's so much more work being done now on European witchcraft and how how different different areas came to believe in it. One of the most interesting areas I encountered as I was kind of finishing this book was when people were being tortured in Europe, in early modern Europe, to admit that they had had sex with the devil and had and that they were guilty of of making pacts with the devil and things like that, that under torture, they would actually allow some of their own fantasies or folk traditions to, to kind of run free. You know, if you're trying to give someone a story and they're asking you crazy things like, what did the devil feel like when he was having sex with you? What are you going to draw on? And so, so scholars have begun to kind of say, you know, there were the, there were these traditions out there about about p- people and spirits and and what the different spirits felt like and and what what kinds of people in the village actually had sexual relationships with spirits. There's a lot of really interesting literature now, r- research now on on how the stories came together of the sexuality of the devil and what people did in the in the woods with the devil and things like that and they're using inquisition records but they're coming up with the most um, amazing things so i would say that's probably one of one of the areas i find most interesting a really interesting thing about all of this is that all of this seems to stem from religious beliefs that are so seem to be somewhat ingrained in in society that we can't get away from not that these people might be super religious they may not be or they might be but mm-hmm. for some reason it's still they still tend to believe these ideas of satanic rituals and, and mm-hmm. abuse that I, I that i found really interesting about it all well one th- one thing there I, w- I would point out the difference is that one of the things i argue is that in let's say folk society untouched by Christianity, especially, or, or if touched by Christianity, untouched by Protestant Christianity, there is not so stark a tradition or experience of evil. There are spirits that sometimes can be quite ornery. There are saints who can be sometimes quite ornery, quite hostile. And there are saints and spirits that can be quite positive. What is interesting in the history of this whole issue of people becoming evil is how evil becomes so starkly imagined. And it is starkly imagined as a real duality. So when when people imagine satanic ritual abuse, they weren't imagining a bunch of fun people putting like a, a bunch of fun hippies putting on clothes and kind right. of getting out of hand with the, with the sexuality. They were imagining people worshiping Satan, the absolute opposite of all that is moral, and then naturally doing, you know, abusing young girls. And actually, you can see this kind of through history that people in their normal life will have a much more, let's say, ambiguous relationship to malfeasance, ambiguous relationship to people doing the wrong thing. Not that the, it, certainly people were were throwing each other in down cliffs and into fires for you know untold generations. So it's not that they were nicer people. It's just that they didn't have the sense that Satan is the threat, and that's that's the real difference that comes with 
Christianity in some cases, certain kinds of Christianity, especially Protestant. And it's what's happening really started happening in Africa with the incursion of missions. African societies had certainly a concept of evil spirits and bad spirits and witchcraft and things like that. But when you have certain Protestant groups coming in saying, no, there is devil, the, the devil and there is God, you know, suddenly people get very, very scared of what it what the devil means. So David, <laughs> our first name for this podcast was the devil speak. <laughs> and then my my mom freaked out and then Zoe started things move saw, saw things moving. So no, that's not what happened. I didn't see anything moving. What are you talking about? I also saw I mean we just you said that you said you saw it. something when I got up away from my computer. Yeah. And then I got a little weird. I mean, usually I'm fine about these things. I'm like, oh, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but then like it just like people started getting nervous. So I was like, you know, what? we're just going to change the name yeah. because this Yeah, is yeah, yeah. This that, is not that, gonna, yeah, yeah. Work. Um, you get the wrong kind of crowd with the devil. Yeah, the, yeah, you know, it's true. Do you think society has learned anything from the moral panic of the eighties and nineties? Yeah, that's that's a that's a uh, you know, it's a good question. Certainly, the field of psychology, fields of psychology and social work, I would say, learned a lot about memory, about ideas of recovered memory. They learned a lot about what's called countertransference and that is the relationship of the therapist to the patient and that you have to keep very strict boundaries if you if you mess with those boundaries and take phone calls at any time at night and encourage your your patient to believe things that they hadn't brought up you are committing malpractice so i think psychology and psychotherapy got learned a lot during the 1980s and 1990s. I think interviewing victim, child victims, people learned a fair amount, certainly a lot more than interviewing suspects that, that, and police learned about it, interviewing suspects. I, I don't know about lingering effects. You still find people who say that these satanic cults exist and there's still satanic ritual abuse. Um, and I was, was uh, struck to discover that in Utah, there is still kind of mild or kind of panic that pops up here and there among Mormons about satanic ritual abuse. And a person I talked to who, who knows a lot about Church of Latter-day Saints suggested that this had to do with particular uh, notions of, of ritual and of evil ritual that are kind of at home in Latter-day Saints tradition. So it's still going on there. But one of the things that happened between then and now is, first of all, 9-11 and then uh, anxieties about immigrants. And so in these cases, we are back with a much, you know, kind of traditional American xenophobia, Amer American fear of the outsider. And there have been characteristic attempts to sexualize the terrorists, you know, with their fantasies about or their alleged fantasies about uh, getting 71 virgins when they die. And of course, Trump made a very strong effort to characterize Mexican 
immigrants as being rapists. So there's the idea that immigrants are going to prey on you. So with our new, let's say, it was really kind of pre-Trump anxiety about the outsider, the, the immigrant, in many ways, the idea that the nice white family next door is conducting satanic ceremonies in their basement became a little bit moot. The nice family next door could be plotting something against the world. Yeah, right. Or, well, the nice family next door, if, they're, if they look different and they have different customs or ceremonies or something like that, then you might wonder what they're doing. But this, the idea that it's, it's someone who looks like you, but is devoted to Satan, that has become a little bit less pressing. Yeah, I see the common theme of if anything is different and then you sexualize it, it just makes it more scary. Yeah. Yeah, sex and sexual assault and rape have such a visceral reaction. So it's it's a really interesting technique that seems to have that seems to be happening, just like you said, right? Yeah, I was I guess like um, we didn't really talk much about repressed memories, and it seems like at the in the eighties, early nineties. I mean, obviously, psychology has really changed, or mm-hmm. seemed, well, I mean, it always changes. It always mm-hmm. you know moves along, but at the time. I'm wondering, was it sort of, I feel like the the standards, right, or or, or the guidebook for, for repressed memories or even just psychotherapy in general or hypnosis, the use of that, those seem to be out of favor now because yeah. we, you know, we've learned quite a bit. So how are repressed memories sort of seen now? How is hypnosis seen now in terms of psychology? goes back to even like the book, The Courage to Heal and any bits and pieces of that, you know, sort of the guidebook for identifying if you've been abused and things like that. all those sort of techniques and, and ideas mm-hmm. from from that time. Where are we at now with those ideas? Well, people are just much more aware since the 1980s and 90s of how, what a large impact the therapist has on patients and that hypnosis, which was imagined by some people in the 70s and 80s as eliciting actual stuff, then people began to see that, no, you're actually making people imagine things that they wouldn't have thought of other themselves. Repressed memories was the idea that you have kind of picture-perfect memories that you have repressed out of trauma, but we now know that memory doesn't work that way, that memory is very malleable, that that you can imagine memories, and that some memories can be, I don't think the word now is, is repressed anymore, but people can put away memories. But the idea that Sybil, in many ways, represented was that every time something terrible happens to you and your family you put away the memory and then you kind of invent a new personality to address that trauma. This is simply not the way people work. And there has been such an expose of what actually happened between the psychiatrist Cornelia Wilbur and the person named Sybil or called Sybil. It just, it simply did not happen the way it did in the movie. I actually wrote my intro psych paper on multiple personality disorder back. <laughs> it was a research paper, 1980, what would have been, I think 1981, 1980. And there was some 19th century research. There was 
I think there was an early 20th century research, The Three Faces of Eve, and there was Sybil. And that was it. That was really? it. Yes. That was actually going to no, my next question, too. About Nobody oh, had done yeah. any other research on multiple personality wow. disorder, which I thought was such a cool topic. And then I put it away. I didn't go into the field of psychology. Ten years later, there are like innumerable books with like 32, 50 personalities, 75 personalities. It just takes off. And there's some very interesting cultural cultural historians who talk about, you know, why was it, you know, what was so fascinating about multiple personalities, about having all these different things inside. Was it in were these people in some ways kind of fallen heroes of what we all want to be? Do we all feel like we need to be 18 different things? You know, one personality to our mother, another personality to our boss, another personality to our spouse or something like that. Is that is that what's going on here? And they they're the kind of heroes of this, or I don't know why there was such a fascination with, with these figures. David, the answer is yes. We, yes. we, we are different with everyone. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm definitely different with my, my parents than I am with. Right. But, you know, but now, but now the whole multiple, multiple personality disorder, dissociative identity disorder, it's all been turned to dust. Simply is not a plausible psychopathology and and that means that you can't you can't go into a therapist's office and perform the personalities it's just not not part of the right not part of the psychological world was i I believe was disassociative identity disorder mostly an american thing because i i think in europe it's not really even i don't think it was recognized as um no uk followed us in a lot of the satanic ritual abuse stuff and Australia too. So, right. you know, something characteristic of these okay. cultures, I guess. Holland in some ways, sometimes. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's very, it's very interesting. Um, I would say, you know, one additional little area that, that came up during this time in tandem with dissociative identity and multiple personality was demonic possession as a, a kind of almost clinically recognized area of research by evangelical and Pentecostal churches and seminaries. So that the literature on, you know, once upon a time in Protestant denominations, what I call uh, demonic possession was something you would deal with in a very ad hoc way. Like your daughter's, you think your daughter's possessed, you bring her to a minister and he or and he does an exorcism of some sort. It became much more streamlined during the 80s and 90s. So there's like a, a large literature on what Satan wants and how he manifests. And it uses the psychological language very often of different identities and different personalities. Sometimes the personalities are the personalities of demons, and sometimes the personalities are the personalities that invite demons in. But it becomes a whole different aspect of this. And one of the one of the things I, I pointed out was that during the 80s and 90s, you also have the uh, beginning of Christian counseling, and very often Pentecostal evangelical counseling, which admits not just the existence of Satan, but Satan's active invasion of people. 
So that he's he's actively trying to get inside you to and his demons are actively trying to kind of pervert you, enter you, make you do bad things. So it all became kind of interwoven with dissociative identity and things like that. Thank you, David. Um, Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. yeah, this was fun as hell. It was good. Pun intended. Yeah. Fun as yeah. fun as hell. Fun as hell. Right. Exactly. It's interesting that if you if you ask the right people, they will still have these beliefs that these groups exist, that these things happen. And in some cases, it's very possible that people believe that these actual, these real life cases, right, McMartin and Martinsville, that these things actually did happen. There are probably people who actually still believe that those things happened. And I don't know if you actually heard about With the McMartin case, the mother who was the initial one with the accusation that something happened to her child. Yes, she was diagnosed with, I believe, um, schizophrenia. Even before this whole thing was over. I think paranoid schizophrenia. Oh, that's interesting. So. Not to say that like everybody's mentally ill when they have these accusations, right? There are people who clearly, you know, from talking to David, there are kids who were then sort of made to believe that things happened to them when they didn't as well. But I mean, which is unfortunate. But yeah, I mean, when you have a parent who is then diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia who's making these accusations against a preschool. Why, why is that not taken into account? And people are still being, you know, I mean, the charges against there's hundreds of charges in that case. Yeah. Against people who did nothing, you know? So it's interesting how, even if like the truth does spill out these negative ideas, right? Well, not negative ideas, these, these particular, I guess, how do you even say that? The idea that these things still happened is still persistent, right? Mm -hmm. We still want to believe that these terrible things happened. There are other cases like this as well, where, these the idea that these people who were accused and charged with crimes did something is still persistent in some ways because their image is tarnished right yeah. how people view them their interactions with the outside world is now different it's forever changed because their life has changed they were accused of something horrific and just like the children can be scarred from believing that things happened to them when they didn't. The people who were accused can also 
suffer because they have to deal with the fact that people may actually still believe that these things happened. Once you're accused of abusing a child, right? Or any, in any form, right? Sexual abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse, it still travels with you. It still, it sticks with you. Yeah. Because people may still believe that you did it, even though you've been proven innocent, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's, it's weird how it's kind of ingrained in people's minds about a crime against a child. Even if the person has been exonerated, even if the person has been exonerated and proven innocent, it just doesn't go away. You can't just switch it off. I think there are people who still will believe deep down that this person did it and the justice system, I don't know, or they just got lucky um, with the justice system. But I think you're right. And that takes a long time to go away. And just like the victims, the people who have been accused their whole lives, this is, some, this is something that they would have to live with their whole lives. Learning about this from David was so important, not just for us and not just for me who did not know about the moral panic, for people who still believe in the satanic panic and who still believe that there are cults that exist today that go out, kidnap and sacrifice children and abuse children. To be honest with you, even if somebody has heard what David's had to say or what other people who are experts on the topic have to say, I think there there are people who will still believe it. I guess that's true, right? When you have something set in your mind for so long, it's it's really hard to get it out. Or, it's hard to let go of that. Yeah, it is. And I think like I, I still believe in the whole scapegoating thing that sometimes it is just easier to believe that this out there cult is the one who's abusing your child than say your family friend. That's true. That's very true. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. I'd like to thank David for being a guest on today's show. David is the author of Evil Incarnate, Rumors of Demonic Conspiracy and Satanic Abuse in History. It's a paperback with an awesome cover. You can get it at your local bookstore or anywhere books are sold. You can check out links to that book as well as others by David on our website and check out the show notes. We'll have other information about Satanic Panic for you to check out. Thanks for listening.